Welcome to MedHeads, the weekly show that brings a biopsychosocial focus to issues of the day, along with special guests who will showcase their expertise and enthusiasm about their field of practice. Your host, Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and welcome to MedHeads. Today, we have regular guest Marty Kendall with us. Marty, how are you? Awesome. Great to be here with you again, Fergal. Yeah, great to see you again. So listen, I wanted today to talk about data-driven fasting and you've got a website on data-driven fasting and we'll put that link uh, below. But before we leap into that fascinating subject, let's talk a little bit around it first of all. So the thermic effect of food. What is the thermic effect of food? Thermic effect of food is just the energy that's lost in the conversion of the food you eat to ATP, which is your energy currency of the body that you use in your mitochondria to fuel your body and move your, move yourself around. So yeah. in that conversion through the digestion and the conversion and the breaking down of um, your amino acids and carbohydrates and alcohol and fat, they have certain different losses. It's, it's more difficult to convert protein to energy whereas you know carbs and fat are easy to convert so you get about nine percent loss of from carbohydrate on average four percent from fat like 20 to 35 percent losses from protein so protein's harder to convert and not a great source of energy for day-to-day use but really handy for building your muscles and uh, repairing your organs and uh, making neurotransmitters and the like so yeah all right so if, if i can use a, a financial analogy you've got to invest you've got to invest to actually recoup so there's a cost to digestion of food yep. and then yeah. when you factor yeah, that cost the brokerage or the transaction costs of the food yes yeah. yes the transaction costs of food yeah so <laughs> th- that means then that there are some foods which actually don't produce energy because they, they, they cost too much to digest. I mean, I, yeah. I heard that uh, celery was, uh, was actually a, a, a negative food because because there's so much fiber in it, it actually costs so much energy to actually digest it that the return you get on it is less than the cost. Are there yeah. any other foods that are a bit like celery, as far as you know? Oh uh, yeah, things like like mushroom and uh, you know those sorts of really bulky, fibrous, water-filled mm. foods that are very light, have very few calories, and yeah. take a lot of energy to, to digest, but don't actually yield a lot of energy. So yeah. lettuce or those sorts of things that are incredibly, yeah. um, they, they provide nutrients and, and uh, take energy to digest, but don't give you a lot of calories in return to power your body right if only we could love celery and lettuce in the same way that we <laughs> beer and chips and chocolate <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah and there's something to that your body just goes you know it doesn't want to starve so it goes for those energy dense foods that like we talked about last yeah. time give you carbs and fat at the same time without too much protein and quickly convert yeah. into energy that you can store as fat yeah, yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? So moving on to mm. metabolism, I mean, you know, weight weight loss, the or the science of weight loss started out, didn't it, with basically calories in versus calories out, and mm. um, calories out was basically a function of metabolism, wasn't it? What 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 factors do you know that uh, influence metabolism? 
I mean, how do we actually change um, the calories out? But yeah, it's incredibly complex. And people say, yeah, just eat less and move more to lose weight. But yeah, the, the, the factors on both sides of that calories in calories out equation are just incredibly complex and beyond our ability to track with a fitness tracker or Fitbit or chronometer on my fitness pal, because you know, they're, they're really complex because on the calories outside, as we eat less, our body adapts, um, we burn less energy. Um, you know, when we've got pandemics, we move around less and, um, we can't, uh, our non-exercise activity thermogenesis decreases, not a, not a thermogenesis word. Um, and what is that? What's I, I suppose we, we quickly adapt to a lower calorie intake. What, what is non-activity thermogenesis? Yeah, so I suppose it's when you're, you know, when you're not exercising, when you're not intentionally running around or trying to burn off calories, Mm. Um, when you have a, a donut or a whole lot of energy or a massive meal, they're fidgeting. You see your kids fidgeting like anything and moving around and, and twitching and like I'm doing right now. And uh, it's that energy you burn off just through the day with your general movement. Mm. And as you cut your calories, you um, you tend to move less, you become more sluggish and you'll just sit on the couch and watch TV and yeah. you're not very energetic and you don't, you know, exude a lot of heat um, and all yeah. those sorts of things sort of shut down. So your body's incredibly complex and, and fascinating, mm. um, and it's really hard to to measure it the way we would in a in a bomb calorimeter, which is where you burn the food and see yeah that one gram of water. Uh, uh, sorry, that 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 amount of food raises one gram of water by one degree Celsius, which is a calorie. So we don't yeah. really burn food that, the way that a bomb calorimeter does. Yeah, yeah, that's true enough. I remember doing those in uh, science when I was a kid. Wow. So one of the things that I, that I think of when I'm thinking, thinking about, uh, you know, the, the burning energy when we're not moving is, is something that we call the basal metabolic rate. And that mm. really, one, one of the markers of, of the basal metabolic rate is actually body temperature. So your resting body mm. temperature is, um, is a good marker for that. And I always think of 30, 36.5 degrees Celsius as a temperature mm. that, that one should aspire to. Because there, some, some writers suggest that a temperature less than 36.5 is actually indicative of a, of a lower than optimal I won't say lower than mm. normal, but a lower than optimal basal metabolic rate. And I don't say lower than normal because the normal body temperature range is, is, is actually 35 to 37. Mm. So, you know, uh, fever is defined as more than 37 and hypothermia is defined as less mm. than 35. But within that range, I mean, you, you've, you've alluded to the fact that there are so many factors which can... Um, mm which can uh, ch change your metabolic rate. And, and I'm thinking of disease states, you know, because, you know, being a doctor, that's what I do. You know, so for mm. instance, a very, very obvious one to me would be, you know, thyroid diseases. Mm -hmm. So, you know, your thyroid gland is a, is a gland that is found in the neck and it's really acting as the thermostat for the body's furnace. Mm -hmm. And if you're underactive on your thyroid gland, then you're very sluggish, you're very slow and you've got less heat, you've got less energy and your, your temperature yeah. goes down a little bit. So that would influence, uh, you know, metabolism. Sure. But are there any other factors that you would you can identify that will influence metabolism? 
Yeah, I think muscle mass is, is a major yes. one. That if you've got yes. plenty of muscle mass, your basal you, you, those basal metabolic rate calculators are all based yeah. around how much muscle mass you're carrying. So yeah. Yeah. in weight loss, it's critical that you maintain your lean muscle mass so you mm-hmm. maintain your metabolic rate so you don't have to cut calories really, really, really low to yeah. maintain a, a lower weight and you also look better. But also it depends on what you eat. Like if you drink, um, you know, uh, a cup of vodka, you'll 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 exude a whole lot more th- heat and get sweats. And similarly with protein, because protein, alcohol has to be burnt off really quickly because there's nowhere to store it. But but protein has a very high thermic effect. So if you eat a whole lot of meats, they call it the meat sweats. If you eat a whole lot of uh, protein all at once in one big batch, you'll exude yeah. all this uh, heat as you try to convert that to energy and your body says, I, I can't deal with all this protein. It's too hard to convert to ATP. So I'm going to um, exude it as heat and even dump some of it off into the urine. So, you know, that the calorie is not a calorie, calorie the same way that you would burn in a bomb calorimeter. Mm, mm. So that's a very interesting point that you've made, is that muscle mass and muscle activity are actually uh, big factors that influence metabolism. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I don't, I, I'm particularly an advocate of high-intensity interval training, which, and the idea of that is, of course, that you, you stimulate your muscle, uh, your muscles, and you, you exercise as, as, as intensely as you can for a limited amount of time in a day. Mm. And that then actually stimulates your basal metabolic rate overnight. So actually your, your higher sure. basal metabolic rate overnight burns more calories when you're asleep. Mm. Because you know, the, the thing is, you know, if you're, if you're ice skating, if you're walking, basically you can walk for an hour and burn 200 calories and then go and eat a cream bun and that's it. You know, you're, you're back yeah. to neutral again. Whereas <laughs> if, you can do, if you can do something for five, 10 minutes max, which then stimulates yeah. your basal metabolic rate all through the day and overnight. Well, then you're constantly making those those gains, those incremental gains in terms of mm. losing energy and losing fat. So, Definitely. which then brings us on to the point of well, what's counting calories? Then you know what's the point of that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, de- definitely. Uh, given it's so complex, uh, counting calories is is fraught with. Um, frustration and confusion and a lot of people put all this effort into tracking calories on their app and my fitness pal and you know your lizard brain always tries to work out how to get that extra cream bun that you don't log or you uh, you don't weigh the um extra scoop of peanut butter that was still on the spoon that you put in your mouth or you know for all this effort you put into it a lot of the time it doesn't yield great results because um yeah, so many different factors, so many moving parts, and uh, yeah, you, 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 your little subconscious always works to make sure you stay alive and uh, have enough energy, and tricks your conscious brain into uh, to eating a little bit more than you want. And a lot of people, uh, as I mentioned, the data-driven fasting article, a lot of people literally go insane and 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 have eating disorders and neurosis from long-term calorie tracking just because it's such a mentally intensive activity that fights against your instinctual drives and impulses. So it sets up your conscious against your subconscious and um, your subconscious always wins and uh, your conscious brain ends up getting depressed and sad and uh, not happy when it loses. Mm. So this is particularly a problem that you've said 
in your website <clears throat> uh, mm. with My Fitness Pal, that, that there's a, that there's a mm. correlation between that and um, uh, you know there's these these feelings of anxiety, etc. Mm. Yeah, there was a study that they did with My Fitness Pal users with um, people with diagnosed eating disorders, and I think it was seventy three percent of the people with the diagnosed eating disorder were My Fitness Pal users and. 73% of those said that the use of the app had actually contributed to the, the eating disorder. So it just seems that, as I said, it sets up your lizard brain with your conscious mm. um, intelligence and you know, you, 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 your lizard brain always wins because yeah. you're always set up for survival. Right. So if my fitness pal is watching this, we're not in any way implying causation here. We're only alluding to... <laughs> We're only alluding to an association. Definite correlation. An association, but not causation. And I suppose this it's is a documented effect. study. Well, okay, Your Honor, it's a documented study. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to take it up with the journal editors. <laughs> All right. So, but I suppose what we're saying is that, that if you are too obsessive about counting calories, it can lead to neurotic disorders. And in, and in certain individuals, it can actually facilitate. I'm not sure that it would create, but I think it would certainly facilitate eating disorders. Mm. Mm. So the, the downside, so basically what you're saying is the downside of um, counting calories is, 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 is the mental health aspect. But then there's another downside, because if you're starting to, if you suddenly starve yourself, what happens to your basal metabolic rate? What happens to your thermogenesis? If you say I'm going to eat 40 less cal 40 percent less calories for the next 12 weeks, your metabolism shuts down, you start to lose muscle mass and your body goes into, uh, you know, I was going to say starvation mode, but it, it gets to the point where it says, yeah, I, I, I need to do whatever I can to make sure I get that energy back. So as soon as you allow it to, and as soon as that 12-week challenge or whatever that limit was, or when, whenever you just say, I give up, you rebound and, and uh, all that energy you put back on probably goes on back as fat because you're eating the energy-dense, nutrient-poor, low-protein, low-satiety foods that will help you gain fat really quickly. So if I'm listening to what you say, right, this is what I'm hearing, that calorie restriction, which we'll, well, we'll use the synonym, synonym starvation. If you go on a starvation diet, it actually reduces your metabolic rate, which means you're not actually losing as many calories as you might if you were on a normal mm -hmm. metabolic rate. And then when you stop the diet, you get really hungry, you eat junk food, and then you pile the weight back on. Mm -hmm. So what, so A, the starvation diet causes a slower than otherwise possible weight loss, which is then mm. almost entirely, if not entirely, reversed when you cease it. So there's just absolutely no point in, in doing these um, starvation diets. That's, is that what you're saying? It, it works for some people, and I, I suppose if it fits your macros and the bodybuilders who prioritize getting enough protein and dial things down intelligently, but... Um, a lot of people fail when they when they come to calorie counting. And I suppose as an engineer and you're a doctor, that you've got to say that, that energy is always conserved. There's no people often you know, talk about calorie counting and say it's all garbage and calories aren't real and deny energy balance and and that's definitely not what we're saying. Energy is always conserved in the real world and the the law of thermodynamics is is a legitimate thing, but we're just saying it's really complex and beyond your ability with a 
a fitness tracker to do uh, accurately to a point that it will achieve long-term results for most people. Mm. So what you're saying is there are always people for whom anything works, but we're trying to we're trying to help the majority of people most of the time. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The, yeah. Uh, I suppose that the data-driven fasting thing helps people to see their energy balance yeah. in, a, in a more accurate, live way. So, you're from from our previous discussions. We, you have often alluded to ancient man, and and the food that is available in the natural cycle of the years going by. Mm. Ancient man went through periods of fasting. Yep. Why didn't they turn out into fat couch potatoes? Well, they didn't have donuts and Krispy Kremes and peanut butter and cream and everything in the fridge <laughs> at the end of the day fridge. when they got sick of tracking. They, they didn't have the option and they had to chase down the woolly mammoth to, uh, to get food. So it was a bit of extra effort um, to get that comfort food. <laughs> okay. Yes, yes. I suppose that's an obvious question, having asked it. <laughs> it's a circumstantial, environmental, enforced calorie restriction and cycling through, as we talked about, you know, summer, winter, spring, autumn, yeah. that actually enforces different types of foods. Yeah. But all right, so let me just push this to the to the reduction of the absurd, right? Let me just push this one step further. Right right? <laughs> no, you did, you did. I mean, what you basically said was the question was wrong. So here's here's the revised question, right? So yes, ancient man didn't have fridges full of ice cream and Dunkin' Donuts around the corner. Definitely. What about modern man who follows the ancient man diet? Uh yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm personally a a fan of of paleo to a degree. Mm, um, right. Rob Wolf is a bit of a hero of mine, but uh, right. you can always. I think paleo sort of the paleo movement sort of collapsed as soon as you know Amazon was full of paleo comfort food cookbooks where they found you could, um, you know, do bulletproof coffee, which is yeah, that's paleo, and uh, you know, mix What's the almonds. Oh, it's this magic fat-burning elixir where you put MCT oil and 500 calories worth of butter with your coffee and yeah. say my insulin is low and therefore I'm going to be burning fat and somehow it doesn't work for some reason. And a lot of us went through that phase and then you got the almond flour, which is energy dense mixed with the the butter and all the, or the coconut oil, which is paleo and then all of a sudden you've got this energy dense carb fat combination which basically mimics junk food so yes it's paleo but um it, it's very processed and that's where yeah. paleo can fall over but uh, right. but if you have um you know environmentally it's really hard to get those energy dense uh nutrient poor foods all the time um, as we talked about last time, I think we're, they're generally only available in autumn in the natural environment. So yeah. in spring, they're much harder to come by when all the, the animals are lean and, and the sprouts are new and, and fibrous and not full of starchy carbohydrates. So it enforced that energy restriction, that cyclic nature that was really mm. beneficial for us that we went through that sort of a, a, a keto protein sparing modified fast, you know, high carb cycle, um, yeah. fat gain coming into winter again, sort of cycle that, that, that was beneficial to an extent. Yeah. 
So, other fasting protocols. What are the problems with other fasting protocols? Why is yours different from others? Yeah, like, like, like the 16, uh, 8, the 24. The, those are the more commonly yeah. known ones, aren't they? Yeah, or alternate day fasting or multi-day fasting or yeah, extended fasting yeah. because then magic can give you autophagy or fat fasting, which you can just yeah. uh, drink the bulletproof coffee and butter and fat bombs and believe that you've... Um, got low insulin therefore those calories don't count there's all different variations um but i suppose the problem is that none of them are tailored to your unique metabolism your activity levels you are mm-hmm. are you a bodybuilder who's really active or a triathlete or a couch potato or a 70 year old type 2 diabetic who does very little activity all those different people have different um, calorie needs, protein needs, metabolic needs. Um, and, and if you just believe that if you don't eat for long enough, you'll get the results you want, um, regardless of what you eat when you eat again. Um, a lot of those people just keep, <laughs> they lose weight while they, like we talked about before, you, they lose weight during the fast and then eat whatever they want after because what you eat after a fast you're not very discretionary because your lizard reptilian brain takes over and um uh, you just go through that cycle that we talked about a lot of people i knew ended up um, becoming you know fat skeletons one guy called it that that was me that i I did this extended fasting lost muscle mass and then ate ate whatever i want i know when i tried the the fasting craze and didn't fast for day didn't eat for days at a time you come home and you know that the peanut butter the cream the the whatever's in the fridge and all of it looks really good and you sort of congratulate yourself and then a few months of this goes by and you go why am i not actually improving my metabolic health or not losing actual weight i'm not actually improving here and figured there has to be a, a way to move forward and what is that way what is the, the way, way that you propose? What is, yeah, we'll call it the way. Can we can we can we call it the way rather than data driven fasting? The I way, think I think that's much more fine. catchy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure nobody's got that thought of that before. The way, the it's way, definitive. Marty, um, tell me about yeah, your way, <laughs> as opposed the, to my way. <laughs> I suppose coming from my, my wife Monica's a type one diabetic, um, and tracking blood sugars is always a a day-to-day reality and I don't mind doing it myself occasionally and um, looking at the the ways of Dr. Bernstein who's a, a diabetes type 1 guru and, and he really recommends that uh, type 1 diabetics maintain their blood sugar within a certain range and when that gets low they eat and when they when it gets high they inject insulin and, and that doesn't work with people who don't have type 1 diabetes to the same a- approach but it's just sort of all that blood sugar, using blood sugar as a day-to-day tracking of energy status just makes a whole lot of sense to me. Um, and there was some previous work. Uh, there was a 2012 book by Angela Ross, The Glucometer, and then some more recent work out of New Zealand um, from the University of Otago, building on some other research from from Italy where they, they looked at people using their glucometer, their, their day-to-day, minute-by-minute blood glucose levels to calibrate their hunger and it just seems that people can get a feeling on their true hunger and the true need to eat by looking at the current blood glucose status so are you actually hungry or is you know are you eating a habit or routine mm. or 
yeah. because you know that that Krispy Kreme in the fridge was really yummy and you want another one or is it yeah. breakfast time or why are you eating right now and you can actually say am I hungry do I feel hungry I'll check my blood glucose using a simple little blood glucose meter and um, you can calibrate that and then as you continually drop your blood glucose over time you, uh, you you decrease your energy status you you achieve a negative energy balance using a measurement that's uh, you know more practical and useful and measurable than calories over the long term so what you're saying then is that blood glucose monitoring even in someone who's not diabetic is mm. an essential pathway to data-driven fasting yeah yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. someone with type two but diabetes will have really elevated blood sugars in the um, you know seven millimolar or one hundred and fifty milligrams per deciliter, but optimal is much closer to eighty or ninety milligrams per deciliter. So, um, so and can we optimal use, uh, insulin levels and BMI are, are much yeah. more optimal at those levels. Right. So. So I, I'm a man that uses millimoles. I don't use milligrams per deciliter. So so let's 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 just hone down on this, right? So yep. for me, a normal glucose is, is kind of above three and a half to it's between three and a half to five. I mean, you can argue about what's normal, mm -hmm. what's what's disease based, mm -hmm. but about three and a half to five would be um, you know what I would anticipate to be normal. What's the normal range for you in terms of of your data-driven fasting triggers? Yeah. Um, waking blood glucose is a, a measure, of a, an indication of your overall body fat and metabolic health. Someone with um, type 2 diabetes will have elevated waking BGs basically because their, their energy leaches into their blood stream over time um, over the night and sort of backs up in the system so when they wake up their blood glucose is elevated not from necessarily what they ate but because of um, the energy in the system sort of backing back up but um, mm. so anything above um, you know 5.6 is definitely going to be problematic but more five maybe more optimal um, but then before meals um, anything you know above 5.6 and up you know, down to 4.2 yeah. um, might be more optimal. So progressively, we, we, we work to wait a little bit longer until the blood glucose drops a little bit more each time until that, that before, blood, before meal blood sugar is a little bit lower, if that makes sense. So really, it's up to the individual to track their own blood glucose on waking and then pre-meals and then to determine yep. what their usual level is and gradually then knock it down mm. a bit before you eat. So you're delaying food intake progressively waiting for a lower BGL. Is that right? Yeah, and that's the critical thing. I mean, there wasn't yeah. a clear answer that I gave just before to what's optimal because it's really what's optimal for you. And you look at your personalized mm. blood glucose trigger yeah. and say, what's my current, when do I normally feel hungry? When do I normally eat? Maybe yeah. I can wait a little bit longer next time until it comes up down a little bit more. And then progressively, yeah. as you focus on the blood sugar reduction, then your body fat and everything else mm. works itself out. So then you've got to really 
train yourself to not to ignore the the cues to eat that are not biochemical and you need to learn how to respond to a different cue which mm -hmm. is effectively a number on a blood glucose monitor that's quite hard isn't yeah. it you know because you know, we all eat for, as you as you've already alluded to we, we all eat for different reasons so you know it's it's sociable it's emotional it's it's routine Smells good. I mean, you know, here's another question I wanted to allude to. This is my personal experience, right? I am a Tim Tam addict. I cannot eat one Tim Tam and, For then, sure. and then not eat a second, third or fourth. And after about 10 minutes, I do feel a bit sick and nauseous and I'm overwhelmed with guilt and I say, I'm never eating Tim Tams again until, of course, the next time. But it, and then you it, can finish it, the packet. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I can finish a packet of 10 times without a second thought. It takes a while to actually get that blood glucose elevation, doesn't it? And so what drives us to eat mm. before we get the elevation in blood glucose, and certainly with me and Tim Times, is the dopamine rush that I experience when I find that intensely sweet taste in my mouth. Yep. So again, that's another driver to eat that we've got to actually acknowledge, that, that you've got to actually say no to these non-biochemical, non-extraneous, uh, you know, non-appetite cues. You know, are you really hungry? Are you emotionally mm. eating? Are you addicted to Tim Tams? Yeah, but, but you've got to, you say it's not biochemical, but that dopamine response, you're, a, you're a, um, an addiction guru. Um, <laughs> that, that, uh, that addiction response with the dopamine, you get a dopamine hit because your body loves those foods because they fill your fat and carbohydrate stores at the same time without mm. the, the hassle of having to protein, uh, process all that nasty protein that, that's really hard yeah. work to turn into energy and store as fat. So the yeah. reason why you get that dopamine from the Tim Tams is they're really great to prepare for winter. And your yeah. body is always in this, you know, I need to prepare for winter and store as much fat as I can mode. So you very quickly realize when you have those Tim Tams, you test a bit later and you go, hmm, blood sugar's not coming down because you filled the carb and fat storage tanks in your body at the same time. Yeah, and therefore you get a you get a long, slow response of a blood glucose that just doesn't come down for hours and hours, and it's really, yeah. I think, from a that depression, anxiety perspective, it puts you in control of seeing, hey, this is how that food affected my blood glucose. That I ate that food two hours ago, and my blood glucose is this. So it quickly trains your hunger an appetite to understand this is why those foods have an effect on me. And you learn very quickly through the self-reflection rather than just tracking everything you ate every day on MyFitnessPal and then two weeks later going, I'm not losing weight, but I'm spending all this time tracking. Why is that? So it just puts you in this active control position rather than this passive victim mentality that a lot of people end up with with the, the calorie tracking. So... If I could summarize, we've talked a lot about how metabolism and the energy, the energy that we expend is, is variable and, it's, and everyone is different. And we've talked about how various uh, you know, diet, dieting uh, protocols don't really work because they don't take into account individual variation and they don't understand human frailty. Mm. Whereas your system depends on blood glucose monitoring and is basically tailored to individuals. And the system involves mm. retraining 
your, your emotions, your psychology, to actually mm. start consuming food when your blood glucose is at a predetermined level. Yep. And that is, a, that is your way, and it is your way that actually achieves results, which we can see on your website, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Get, and we've trialed it with, uh, sent out 400 spreadsheets now, and people are loving it. It's blowing yeah. up, which is yeah. insane. So, yeah, it's, it's great. really amazing and encouraging. So. Well, Marty, as always, thank you so much for your time and expertise. I really thank do you. hope that you can join us again soon, and I look forward to chatting with you again. That'll be great. Thanks, Fergal. That's it for today's show. Thank you for watching. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Goodbye.